Welcome to Sober Nation FM, a podcast network dedicated to sharing experience, strength, and hope so that you may continue to live your best life of recovery. The Sober Podcast Network is brought to you by Sober Nation. Do you want to live a healthy, sober life? Sober Nation is the world's leading online recovery community. Find support, resources, stories of hope, and even an online treatment program at SoberNation.com. Live a happy life. Be comfortable in your skin and join the recovery movement. Once again, that's SoberNation.com. Now enjoy today's episode. The hell that I was in, I'd do anything to be better. I thought like a lunatic. You kind of just have like that little bit of hope that it will get better. You're going to make it. This began my surrender. I am a witness of my own growth. It's a life beyond your wildest dreams. And I just have to say, it works if you work it. My story, that's what I share. You're listening to Far From Finished, a weekly podcast where we share new real-life stories of hope and triumph told by the people who live them. Today's story comes to us from... My name is Tim. My sobriety date is May 22nd, 2012. Before addiction started, you know, if I look back uh, into high school, I had a pretty good upbringing. Uh, Parents both worked and uh, really was just fortunate and blessed as a kid growing up. My parents were very strict uh, with respect to grades. You know, I always was somebody that did well in school. I studied. I was one of those kids that I never... um, really just took to exams. I always had to really put a lot of work in. Uh, But ultimately, I did well as a student through high school, never drank, never did any drugs. And the other big part of my life, uh, really before that, uh, was being an athlete. I played high school football, and as I was looking to go to college, I really was exploring a couple different options. In high school, I only had one B. So academically, you know, I was qualified to uh, look at a lot of very good academic schools. And it really came down to two options. Uh, one school was Carnegie Mellon, <clears throat> which is based out of Pittsburgh. Very good academic school. And the other option was Pitt. And even though Pitt wasn't as good of an academic school, it was good for pre-dental. And at the time, I thought I wanted to be a dentist. So I made the decision to go to Pitt and uh, engaged in the pre-dental program and really didn't know at the time that I was going to be playing football. And what I ended up doing was walking on the football team at the University of Pittsburgh, which was a pretty big feat. You know, I'd never done this before. Uh, A lot of the other schools, Carnegie Mellon was a Division III school. Big difference between Pitt and a Division III school. And I ended up walking on the team, and it it was really... The, the sports was a key part of my life before the addiction. And I ended up walking on the football team. And a week into camp, I ended up tearing my ACL. So I tore my ACL. I tore my medial meniscus cartilage. And a week later, I had surgery, full knee reconstruction. And that was the first time that I was really introduced to pain pills. I, you know, I can say that you know, through college, I never became addicted to pain pills but I certainly knew what they did. So I had walked on the team, I had this surgery uh, a week after the injury, and then two months later I had a second knee surgery on that same knee. It was orthoscopic surgery, and it really, my knee at the time was not healing, and they actually wanted to do a third surgery. And I said, no thank you, I saw a chiropractor, and I had a decision to make after I had healed my knee. Do I just focus on school or do I recommit to athletics? 
And, you know, at the time, everybody thought it was crazy to walk on in the first place, but I ended up walking on for a second time. And, you know, I really worked hard to get myself in a position to be competitive, and I ended up earning a scholarship. And uh, so I walked on twice and earned a scholarship, a full athletic ride, and I was a wide receiver and a punt returner. And for the most part, I had a pretty good experience in college. But again, football was a 40-hour commitment in addition to a full workload. And as I was a small guy in college as a receiver and a punt returner, cumulatively through the course of my years, I was a three-year letterman at the University of Pittsburgh, played three years. But in addition to the knee surgeries, I also broke my collarbone. Um, which required a lot of pain pills because you can't stabilize your collarbone. And I also separated my shoulder. And this, the shoulder was really two-part. I separated it my senior year. We were playing Penn State. I was returning a punt, separated my shoulder, and I ended up rehabbing my shoulder, which again had some pain pills. And then two days after the last game I played my senior year, which was a bowl game, I had shoulder surgery to repair uh, my, labr my labrum and I, uh, my rotator cuff. Uh, again, pain pills. And at this point, I had graduated. I was done playing football. I had taken many, many bottles of pain pills. But there was one instance where I got a refill on my pain pill prescription. It was when I broke my collarbone to where I really didn't need that refill, but I got it anyway. And that was one of the first... It didn't really register at the time that, you know, what was happening, but it was a circumstance where I got the pills and I, and I went through with the bottle and I finished it. So after I had graduated, one of the things that I always look back, you know, with respect to life before addiction is when you play football at a division one level, you're flying on a, on a commercial jet that only has the football team. We never went through an airport. Uh, we had police escorts from the airport to the field. Uh, we stayed in nice hotels. We are on national TV, ESPN, NBC. And when you're on that stage, part of me feels like when I graduated, I had lost a big part of what drove me to compete, the assertiveness, the work ethic. And when I left that stage, you know, looking back, I feel like there was a void in my life because football was everything. School was part of it as well, but football was everything. And that's really where I began to lose traction. And I lost the Tim that was that kid that walked on the football team, earned a scholarship, and really overachieved. Everything was then lost after I graduated. And, and that's really where it started leading into uh, some of the addictive behaviors which led to my addiction. So I can't say that there was an exact defining moment that led to my addiction, but there were uh, activities that I engaged in that really led me down that path. After I graduated, I really didn't know what to do. I had a degree in history. I did not go the, the dental route, uh, which is probably a good thing. I don't know if a dentist, being a dentist would be a good profession that looking back. But I, I got into personal training. So I worked at a company called Bally's Total Fitness. And at the time, it was the big premier gym facility across the country. And I looked for a replacement. Uh, you know, I was looking to replace football with something else that I could compete. And I actually got into bodybuilding. And 
initially it was a circumstance where, um, you know, when you're bodybuilding, you have to diet very strict. I had a good foundation of physique from playing college football, but it did include steroids, and I wasn't really concerned about the steroids, but it was the lifestyle of bodybuilding that led into the addiction, or at least the beginning stages of it. And what happened was, when you diet very strict, you know, your, your intake of food and liquids is very restricted. And, you know, just through the course of meeting people in that industry, uh, I was introduced to a substance called GHB. And GHB is a substance where if you take a tablespoon, the euphoric feeling was similar to drinking three or four beers. And it was only a tablespoon, no calories, and it was also used to help you rest. It's a GHB is a depressant, and you know, it would help me sleep, but it would also help me relax and just unwind a little bit because the diet and the, the weightlifting was so strict. And I didn't really notice at the time, but what started out as taking some GHB after I worked out to taking GHB before I went to bed slowly but surely became a circumstance where I was taking GHB every couple hours. Uh, and before you knew it, I was completely hooked. And, you know, I, at the time, I knew a supplier of GHB, and I was literally getting liters of GHB. So um, we started out with the GHB, and, you know, just through hanging out with the wrong people, we also began to party. So cocaine, uh, every once in a while ecstasy. But, you know, I quickly learned that a lot of people drink and do coke, uh, GHB with Coke was a pretty balanced upper and downer, and it got to a point where I was just partying, you know, on the weekends, and I was doing GHB every day from the day from the moment I woke up until the moment I went to sleep. Sometimes even I'd wake up in the middle of the night, couldn't sleep, I'd take GHB, and it was on a particular occasion where I was already, you know, high on the GHB and I was watching a lady's house. I was house-sitting, and um, thank God that my brother was there, but uh, a dose of GHB is a tablespoon, and I was on the phone, I was high on the GHB, or I was messed up on the GHB, and in one of my glasses, I probably had about two inches of my GHB, which was my source, and I accidentally mixed the juice with that two inches of GHB, and I guzzled it. And as soon as I finished guzzling it, I realized, oh shoot, I just drank way too much GHB. And I can remember at the moment, my mind registered, what do I do? And part of the irrationality was I've been taking so much GHB that I should be okay. And I remember telling my brother Josh, who was there at the house, I just drank way too much GHB, and I went, I said, I'm going to go try to throw up. And as soon as I went into the bathroom, I was out, um, completely out. And my brother recalled the circumstances that I went into a seizure, and I died. Fortunately, he had called 911, and the paramedics arrived. They shocked me back to life, and they intubated me. And, you know, you try to find some, you know, rationale with the whole circumstance. And I'll never forget, at the time, I was a bodybuilder, so I was a pretty big guy. 
And my brother said, you know, once they had me stabilized, the challenge that they had, which is kind of ironic, was how are you going to get Tim out of the house? Because they had to carry me down the steps. And they ended up taking me to the hospital. And I was intubated, and I was in ICU. A couple days later, I can remember to this day waking up as they pulled the tube out of my throat that was used to intubate me. It was a rib tube. And I can remember even clear as day, this is going back to 2002, of them pulling that out. And then I just remember waking up. And the circumstances around that situation, which really um, you know, are difficult, is when my parents arrived, I was, tubes were in my body. I had died, so I'd stopped breathing. There was charcoal all over my body. And I remember my mom telling me that the doctors didn't know what my brain capacity would be because I died. And fortunately, I was very blessed when I woke up that I had brain activity. And I remember being in the ICU for a couple days, and what really struck me was people were dying. Um, there were some elderly folks that died. I think there were two people that died. And you know, I, I felt so foolish being this young kid that made such a stupid decision in the ICU while people were dying. And the moment I knew I had an addiction, you know, if you can believe it after the story that I just shared is I still did GHB after I left the hospital. And um, that circumstance of the GHB pretty much died away. Um, I, I eventually stopped taking the GHB and the other phase of my addiction, so I knew I had an issue there based on the fact that I had died and I still did GHB, but I knew I had an issue because I continued to party, cocaine, going out, drinking, and what ended up happening is I would cure my hangovers with a pain pill. So this goes back to the athletics, is I knew what they did, and to today I always tell people two things can happen when you take a pain pill. Either you get sick and tired, or you get a lot of energy and you feel good. And I was on the category that I felt good and got energy. And at that time, I started curing my hangovers with the pills. And what became, you know, pills on Sunday became pills on Tuesday, pills on Thursday. And I knew at the time I was walking down a path, but one of the, the greatest assets of an athlete is our pride, which for me and my addiction was actually a downfall because I felt like I could beat it and slowly but surely, I became addicted to pain meds. And that's when I knew I had a problem with addiction. Active addiction, for me, um, was a circumstance that lasted. You know, the GHB incident, I was working as a personal trainer at a gym. But, you know, I had a degree. And after a couple years, I ended up training a gentleman that, that managed a loan department for PNC Bank, which is based out of Pittsburgh. And I moved out of the uh, personal training industry, and I started working as a professional at PNC Bank. And life as an addict initially, you know, there's different stages of addiction with pills. And when I started working at the bank, uh, I, all through my addiction, did relatively well as a professional. I was successful. I was in sales. I was a top performer. Um, but life was always dictated by the pills. And when I say there's different layers, what I mean by that is I started off taking Perks, Turk, Perk 5 or 10 milligram pills or the Vicodin 7.5 milligrams. And I was a highly functional addict. I never missed work. 
uh, never had any issues with being arrested or driving under the influence, even though I was on the pills. Uh, I never committed any crimes. And as it progressed from the perks in the Vicodin to the 15 milligram to the 30 milligram Roxy's or 30 milligram Percocets, that's where I started to get into a phase of realizing that each step I took with higher milligram dosages of pills, the more and more I became dependent physically uh, via the addiction. And it got to a point where at the end of my addiction, I was doing three to four Oxy 80s a day, which the street value of that is $150 to $200. You know, foolishly, as I stated, I always did relatively well professionally. And at the, you know, at one point, I was making twenty to $30,000 a month as a mortgage consultant uh, for uh, Fidelity Mortgage. And I could easily afford the habit. And, you know, the pride of me said, well, I'll stop when I need to stop. It's not a big deal. And once I had moved into the training space, uh, I was in my full-blown addiction, highly functional. And, you know, this is, I, I use this as an example, but at the time I was making about $72,000 in my profession, I drove an Audi A4, but the ironic part of the circumstance is I remember on a couple occasions taking gas from my riding mower and putting it into my car so I could get to work not having any way of knowing where the money would come from to put more gas in my car so I wouldn't get stuck. But that was the life of an addiction. I could afford to not make the jump to heroin. I knew if I made that jump that it, it would just, I wouldn't be able to go back. Because as you progress through the layers of pills, it's hard to go back to the lower milligram dosages. And I knew with heroin that if I ever made that transition that I could never go back to the pills. And in a weird way, I, I could afford not to do that. But at the end of the day, the addiction was the addiction. Uh, I was still vulnerable, just like a heroin addict, to the pills. And the other part of the addiction, uh, with respect to being highly functional, where I was really noticing it was an issue, was the physical dependency of getting sick when I couldn't get the pills. But I, I slowly but surely began to ruin relationships with my, the girlfriends at the time, and I began to ruin relationships with my, my parents. And they were just, you know, at a point where they had given up. And I knew deep down inside that I, I never, you know, I didn't want to live like that. But I really ruined a lot of relationships. And, you know, I, I messed up an opportunity professionally really to grow. Even though I made good money, you know, I was, I was really limiting my capabilities if I was the Tim as an athlete, as a professional, you know, I certainly could have been doing more with my life. And, and I knew I had a big problem at that time. As I referenced, you know, I was a smart kid. I had good grades. I knew right from wrong, but the addiction is so powerful that all of the money that I had coming in was going out to feed my addiction. And the frustration with my parents and those that are, the girls that I were dating at the time the frustration was around the fact that why are you not paying your car bill? Why are you letting your rent payments slide? Why are you not paying a credit card bill? And they would get so frustrated with me and I knew I had to pay those bills, but my life and you know my health, so I wouldn't get sick, so I could go to work, depended on my addiction. Because if I didn't take the pills, I'd get sick. I'd miss work 
it is just a vicious cycle where I had enough money that I could afford the habit, but I was totally neglecting every other responsibility. But I'll tell you, I knew I was neglecting those responsibilities and I knew it was wrong, but I was powerless to quit the addiction and get my life back on track. And that's where I knew I had a serious issue. Recovery for you know my period of, of doing drugs and being addicted to pills and GHB. So just to kind of give you a context, I started doing the GHB in 2002 and I became clean in 2012. So my recovery path may be a little bit different than other folks. I did go to an inpatient treatment facility in 2006 and you know, I, you know, looking back, it's always easy to, to realize that the facility that I went to was not very good. But to give you the perspective, you know, I was on Roxy, I was on Roxy's, which are Perk 30s. And in the course of eight days, I admitted and discharged, and my treatment was over, eight days. And looking back, working for American Addiction Centers, I see that, you know, I probably did not get quality treatment, but that was only the option that we had in Pittsburgh. And as you know, in 2006, I got clean in 2012. It clearly did not work. I was sober for a couple weeks, but the stubbornness and the pride of being an athlete says, well, I can just take one pill. And as every addict knows, that, that certainly doesn't work. Um, so I knew I had an issue there, but you know, my sobriety came in 2012 differently with respect that I did not go to church. Or I'm sorry, I did not go to treatment. Um, I actually did it through meeting a pastor, and, you know, I was raised Catholic, and one of the things that ties to my story and really the aftermath of my sobriety is my faith. Never once did I ever give up on the faith of a higher power, which for me is God. And, you know, I had prayed and surrendered, but never once through all the difficult times did I ever say, God, you're not real. God, I've given up on you. I always believed in my heart that he was there and he was going to come to, to save me through this addiction in the stronghold. And when the pastor that I met was from Guyana came over, we started praying and I started realizing that life is more than just what we can control. It's realizing that there's a higher power that really has control of everything. And through that period of about a year, I started going to church, I started reading scripture, and there were some other events that were happening in my house of a demonic nature that, you know, I don't share the story too often, but, you know, those of us that are Christians, we believe in God, we also know that Satan does exist, and uh, I'll keep it brief, but there are demons, they're very real, and they're, non, they're not physical humans, these are spirits that literally tormented me for about a year and a half. And it was the combination of that activity with my faith that the pastor, I remember, came over to my house. Uh, I had been doing Oxy-80s that day. And he had laid hands on me and blessed my house. And at this point, I was married. My wife knew what was going on, and she was praying for me just as much. But the pastor laid hands on me, and that next day, or that evening, you know, I prayed again, and I surrendered like I had done many, many times. And the next day when I woke up, it was almost as if my mind was wiped clean and I had a clean slate. And I did a self-detox at my house. Uh, I did have some medicine to help uh, with the leg aches, you know, so there were some comfort meds. 
But I can definitively say during the duration of detox, never once did the thought of a pill go through my mind. And to date, I've been clean uh, from, from all pills in my addiction. So it's a combination of really, you know, as they talk about with the AA, is understanding there is a higher power. My higher power is very specific. It's God. And the faith is really what's changed my life with my sobriety as well. That, um, you know, I definitely have a new, at the time in 2012, my life drastically changed once I became sober and clean. It was a long journey, even though I detoxed. You know, I thought I was good, but it took me a good six weeks for my sleep. Um, actually, more than six weeks to get my sleep cycle and routine back on track. Um, but I do want to also note that, you know, because my sobriety experience is different, um, I am not naive to think that I can go out and do a pill. I, I don't look, even though I look at God as somebody that leveraged his power to get me through the addiction and into sobriety, is I'm not somebody that thinks that I can go out and do pills or drink alcohol. Um, that's certainly not how I think. Uh, but I certainly know that the power of God and seeing his power was a huge event that drastically changed my life at that point and then even today where I am today. You know, looking at 2012 and getting into my sobriety, uh, you know, I still was working for a company in the education industry and life was finally getting back on track. I had made good money. Um, you know, I never really had any bills aside from a mortgage payment, I had a car payment, but you know, I never got into credit card debt uh, to any deep degree. Uh, but life was good knowing that you know, I could get a paycheck and within two days it wasn't gone because I spent it on pills. And I remember at the time, you know, being able to get pay my bills, I was able to progress my career. So I, got, I actually um, you know, progressed through the company and I eventually ended up at Dick's Sporting Goods and really had a tremendous opportunity to work for an organization that was, you know, above par, one of the most polished companies I've ever worked for in my life. And things were just going well. I didn't have the stress. Uh, you know, I was, I was staying focused on my recovery. I was staying focused with my faith, uh, which is something I never did prior to getting sober. And life was good. You know, I really, um, you know, I got into this space quite ironically, is I was, I was seeing kids that I knew die from heroin overdoses. And I ended up reaching out to Michael Cartwright. My dad had mentioned, hey, I saw a commercial for American Addiction Centers. And he said, you know, if you want to open a facility, why don't you talk to him and see what he's doing? So, you know, being naive that I was, I, I found Michael's email through his Believable Hope website. And I sent the email just introducing myself talked about my recovery, uh, my addiction and my recovery. And I said, hey, I'm just looking for an opportunity to network, thinking about opening a facility in Pittsburgh. And ironically, you know, I'm thinking he's a chairman, CEO, and coming from big companies, I'm thinking, you know, this guy's not going to email me back. And he actually did. Uh, the next day I received an email back. And it's just one of those coincidences in life that he stated that he would be in Pittsburgh in a couple days. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, this is ironic. He responds to my email, and what are the chances that he's coming to Pittsburgh? But he was. And I ended up meeting with him to talk about opening a facility. It was something that was on my mind. 
And in that, during that conversation, he learned about my professional background, which is training and development. I had been a director of training and development for uh, you know, a company that I worked for, and then I was in that field with Dick's Sporting Goods. And I learned that there was a gap or an opportunity with American Addiction Centers with respect to training and development. And as we were finishing our meeting, he had asked me, he said, you know, send me examples of your work, and maybe we could do some contract work where you could help us build some training materials. So that night, I emailed a host of information that um, apparently he impressed him because the next day on Monday, I received a call from the HR director here at American Addiction Center stating that they saw my work and they wanted to fly me down to Nashville for an interview um, to potentially head up and build the department here at American Addiction Center's training and development. So um, it was unusual circumstances. I wasn't looking to leave American. Uh, wasn't looking to leave Dick's Sporting Goods, um, but it was a good fit professionally and personally. And I have to put in here that another defining moment or something that was different is nobody knew of my addiction. When I was in active addiction, aside from my family and a couple close friends, nobody really knew that I had an addiction issue um, with pain pills. And I remember sitting down with my wife as I made the decision to you know, take the job with American Addiction Centers. And I told my wife, I said, look, you know, most people leave companies because they don't like the company or they don't like their, their manager. And the circumstances with Dick's Sporting Goods is I had, there was nothing about the company that I disliked, but I told my wife, I'm going to tell them why I'm leaving. It's not just for the professional opportunity, but also it's because I am somebody in recovery, and it's, very, it's something that's very dear to me, you know, as an individual and somebody that could use my professional skills to impact a community such as American Addiction Centers. And what was I very ironic is I had three different conversations with a manager, a director, and the vice president of, of the training department at Dick's Sporting Goods. And every one of them, when I told them about my addiction and my recovery, every one of them could relate. And not only did they relate, is there was a degree of respect that, you know, they were happy that I shared it with them, but my story is very unique with football and you know the death from the overdose and surviving that to the pill addiction that I realized that my story could actually inspire other people. And it was after I left Dick's Sporting Goods that I really became vocal um, with sharing my story of addiction and recovery and also my faith that that drastically changed my life. Uh, so I've been with American Addiction Centers for two and a half years now. Another big part of my journey in recovery is a business that I'm starting. And the business is a clothing apparel company. It's called Do Sleeves. And, you know, want to be clear that I'm not bringing this up as a promotional item, but I'm using the clothing brand as a vehicle to inspire other people to never give up or lose faith on their journey of being great in life. So that's the why behind the business. That's the primary objective. How I'm going to build that brand is through sharing my testimony of addiction. And I've learned over the years that rather than be ashamed of my addiction and the mistakes that I make, I've realized that my story can inspire other people 
that, you know, I, you can go from being dead of an overdose to spending years addicted to pills that you can still turn your life around in sobriety. And I've really embraced that. And I've been able to inspire, inspire a lot of people through sharing the testimony of my mistakes and my addiction. And it's just very powerful because, you know, if, if I'm building a brand or a business, the outcome is certainly to make some money and make some profit. But at the end of the day, the most important thing is being able to use my testimony to inspire somebody to never give up or lose faith. So it's really professionally, I've, I feel like today I'm the Tim that was the walk-on at Pitt. Um, I feel like I have a lot of potential. Certainly enjoy working for American Addiction Centers. We have a lot of work to do. But being able to do that <clears throat> with such a clear mind, not worrying about addiction, it's just been amazing to see. You know, I'm 38 years old, and I still feel like I have a lot of potential to give back, not only to AAC, but friends and family, the business that I'm, start, that I'm getting ready to launch. And it's been a positive journey. I can also say with respect to relationships, <clears throat> you know, it's taken a while to rebuild the trust that I lost from my family. Um, but I can say that my parents are proud that I've made good decisions uh, in recovery and I'm doing the right things and I'm making an impact. Uh, my wife, uh, <clears throat> who was there with me through uh, the addiction and the lies about the addiction and you know, a, there was a point where I was taking Suboxone and getting off the Suboxone. And, you know, quite literally, she, she really had validity to leave me once I told her the full scope of my addiction. But she stuck with me. And I'm just happy that, you know, I can just be a positive contributor to society. Somebody said to me, well, you know, if you're trying to build a brand, why are you working at AAC? I mean, if you want to build a brand, you should just drop what you're doing and go build that brand. And this is where I look at things differently. And I've actually done the calculation that I'll share with you, but, you know, I'm required to work 40 hours a week at American Addiction Centers. But when I budget my time, I expect to work at least 50 hours a week. I sleep eight hours a night. I go to the gym an hour every day, and I go to church on Sunday. So over the course of a week, after I do all of that, I have calculated that I still have 56 hours left over to do whatever it is I want to do. And what I happen to be doing is building a business. And the beauty behind the business, again, it has nothing to do with the fact that, you know, I don't like working at AAC. This is where I am and this is where I'm staying. That's simply a hobby. And my hobby just happens to be a business. And I figured out how I could budget time because one thing I won't do is take time from AAC and put it towards my business. So in other words, if I'm working at AAC during the day, I never am engaging in, in my other business because I don't need to. I've already budgeted time in my schedule for the week that you can do it. So that's part of it from, with respect to time, to demonstrate that you can do anything you want. If you have a job... If you have a family, it's just budgeting time to do it. The other part of it is, is really the meaning, as I stated, behind the business. The why behind the deuce sleeves. I'm using the clothing brand as a vehicle to inspire other people to never give up or lose faith on their journey to being great. And as I'm marketing and promoting my business, I literally am meeting people. And every time I meet somebody, I have an opportunity to share my story of addiction and recovery and what, what I'm finding out is people are inspired by that. And they're like, you know what? 
if I want to change my lifestyle, whether it's diet, um, whether it's a health condition, whether it's a job, whatever that is that they're not happy with, I've already received emails where people have said, look, Tim, I've changed a job because you've inspired me to do that. And at the end of the day, you couldn't pay me enough in money or material things to ever feel the reward of knowing that the testimony of my life has inspired them to make a difference in theirs. And that's one of the most rewarding aspects of being able to do that. So, you know, at AAC, I contribute to addiction and recovery via the business. And then my other business gives me an opportunity to inspire people in other ways that aren't just struggling with drugs and alcohol. So it's really been a, a blessed journey that I've been able to do both things. It takes a lot of discipline to do that, but it's, I, like I said, I feel like I'm the Tim that I was when I walked on the football team. And our potential is so, it's just unlimited. And I'll leave with one last phrase is, you know, we've all heard the phrase that all things are possible through Christ our Lord. For some people, that's a statement or that's a statement of faith. For me, it's a statement of reality. And if you don't believe it, look at my testimony of the addiction, the death, and just all those circumstances to where I am today is that, you know, I can thank God for that blessing, uh, but you can do whatever it is you want to do. It's just a question of how are you going to get there. And I'd be more than happy to help uh, if, if somebody's struggling on that journey because I can share my story to get them on track. You know, if I were to look back and give advice, there, there certainly are warning signs that, you know, obviously looking back is 2020. But if you're somebody that's struggling, and my, my addiction was to pills, it was to opiates, um, is as you're stepping from the lower milligram pills to the 15 and 30s, and then from the 15 and 30s to the 40s and the 80s, um, I would recommend that be open to sharing that testimony or sharing your, your addiction with somebody else because what we know is addiction will only get progressively worse. And as it gets progressively worse, it becomes much more difficult. So I, my, my main advice would be don't be afraid to sit down with somebody that you trust that's not going to judge you and share and say, hey, look, I have a problem with drugs or alcohol, combination of both. And be open-minded to getting help because I can only reflect on my own testimony, but for somebody that was really disciplined as an athlete, I could not get through it. And that's the key is a lot of times folks in addiction think like they can get through it on their own, and they can't. And it just progressively gets worse. So really be open to sharing that testimony and surrounding yourself with the right people. You know, I've done a lot of <clears throat> consultations or talked to a lot of people that struggle with drugs and alcohol. One of the things that I talk about are the people that they surround themselves with. And it's going to be extremely difficult for you to get into sobriety if you're still hanging out with those people. If you're selling drugs and you're doing the drugs, you're probably not going to get clean and sober if you're still selling the drugs. So really just aligning yourself with people that are like-minded, uh, surrounding yourself with winners, and don't be afraid to ask for help. When you go to AA or NA meetings, you'll see a lot of folks that are struggling. And, uh, you know, this, my comment to this, I say it very respectively, is that 
I respect your faith, but where, where I see things and maybe could make a recommendation for something different is when you go to an AA or NA meeting, you say the serenity prayer, and it references God in that prayer. So everybody says the prayer, but then five or ten minutes later, somebody will say, well, I'm an atheist, or I don't believe in God, or God's not real, and I can only align my experiences through my faith. And what I would say to somebody that's struggling is if you have a higher power that could be anything, is I would encourage you, you know, my coach always used to say, if you don't like the way things are going, change the way you do things. And if your stance on faith is one of an atheist or you don't believe, but you're literally one step away from falling back into your addiction, is I would encourage you to try a different path. And... Again, surround yourself with like-minded people, people that can encourage you to grow professionally and personally so you don't fall back into the trap of the addiction. Because, you know, AA and NA meetings, you know, if you're not strong-willed, that can also unfortunately be a resource of finding other contacts of people that can get drugs. And, you know, you hate to say it, but there are unfortunately some bad apples that could lead somebody down that path. So really be open to doing things differently in your addiction. If you're somebody that you're not really making progress into sobriety or you're just one step away from going back into your addiction, is really being open to exploring what is your higher power and what do you need to change for you to see a different result.